pieces of paper figuring out which ones will I, will I not drop? And James had the least, but then it was going to be a little bit crowded up here. So if I drop them, I'm sorry. Okay, thanks. If you've got your Bibles, go to uh, Galatians chapter 3. We'll pick up where we left off uh, at the end of last week. I said Galatians, didn't I? Colossians chapter 3. It's going to be a rough night. <laughs> <clears throat> Scott started it, I'm just going to say, right? (laughs) Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Uh, This is God's word for us this evening. Uh, It is perfect, uh, it is poignant, and it is personal. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Father, we were once deaf, and you gave us ears to hear your voice. We were once blind, and you gave us eyes to see you in your word. Uh, Yet because of our sinfulness, there are times we read and hear your words, and yet we cannot hear you. We read and see your revelation in Scripture and cannot see you. Our hearing has become dull by the sounds of the world that we have loved, and our sight has been dimmed by the darkness of sin in our hearts. So by the power of your Spirit, we ask that you might indelibly etch your words in our souls. By the power of your word, rebuke our sin, call forth confession from broken hearts, reveal to us anew the glories of your grace, and cause us to walk daily by its light. May your word, sweet to our taste, cause us both to hunger for more, and be fed from its bounty. Teach us that you cannot be separated from your word and that to love you is to love your word and to obey all that it commands. Hear us as we pray and boldly ask yet again, speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name, amen. As a pastor, when I sit down and begin to write a sermon and begin to develop and and develop kind of the early workings of that sermon, I try as often as I can to preach the central meaning of the text. Meaning, however, can be complex. A particular text, for instance, may have meant one thing for the original listening audience, but have kind of expanded meaning uh, over time in light of God's providence and and further revelation in Scripture to both the original reading audience and then now to us, the listening audience. The Word of God didn't change. It doesn't contradict itself, but it is complex. It is expansive, and tonight's text is one such example. You see, in many ways, I did a disservice to you this evening by titling the sermon as I did, Mastering 
the workplace. You may have seen the title or, or heard or read the passage and thought, okay, well, this passage was written to tell me how I, as an employee, should relate uh, to my boss or how I, as a manager or upper-level administrator, should relate to those who report to me. I see what he did there, mastering uh, the workplace. He's so clever, right? We'll get there. But it does, it, because it does have ramifications for us in our workplaces, but that's not what the text means. Or at least to the original audience, the Colossian church, sitting in Philemon's living room in the city of Colossae. The text, in the original context, was about slaves. And the text, in the original context, was about masters. Philemon, as a master of a large house with many slaves, would have read or listened to what we call verse 1 of chapter 4, and he would have known that Paul was giving him, the master of many, specific instructions about how his mastering of slaves should be markedly different as a Christian. And Onesimus, for instance, the runaway slave of Philemon who Paul met in Rome and, and then tasked him to go back to Colossae, to the master from which he escaped, and to carry at least two letters, one to the church at Colossae, the other a personal letter to Philemon himself. Onesimus would have been listening to what we call verses 22 through 25 in chapter 3, and he would have known that Paul was talking about he, Onesimus, the returned runaway slave, now a Christian, should relate to the master to whom he had returned. You see, we do a disservice if we immediately begin to apply it to our present-day context because in so doing, we rob ourselves of just how soul-reckoning and life-forming Paul's admonition is. These verses fall into what German theologians call the Haustefellen or the house rules section of this letter. It's the Apostle Paul telling the members of Christian households how the outworking of the gospel of Jesus Christ is evidenced in their daily interactions. In these verses, it moves beyond the previous verses, which dealt with the inner workings of family relationships, to the next concentric circle, if you will, of the first century family life, to those who are the house workers, the bond servants, the slaves, and the master of the Christian house, and his responsibility for those under his care and in his employ. So let's go in order. Paul writes first for the slave. In your slavery, remember that in Christ, methods, motivations, and monetary reward are different. Okay? In your slavery, remember that in Christ, methods, motivation, and monetary reward, if you will, are different. Let's take the first one. Slaves, bondservants. It's there in verse 22. Slaves and bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. You see, in Christ, your methods are different. Notice here and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is not advocating for the current societal institution, nor is he calling for them to be overturned. He is simply speaking about what is. He speaks directly to those who are Christians and those who are slaves and applies the gospel directly to their current circumstances. 
He's neither putting his good housekeeping seal of approval on the institution of slavery as it was in the first century AD, nor is he plotting um, some societal revolution through a newly established political arm called the church. He's faithfully applying the gospel by way of the holy inspiration of the Spirit of God and saying, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. As Christians, you are working for masters. The way you work, the way you labor before them and for their good and well-being is a testimony of your faith in action. As such, obey. You need to seek their well-being. You need to seek their common good. You need to seek their welfare. You honor, you obey them. You work differently as a Christian slave than those around you who are not Christians. We'll get to the motivation behind this in the next point. But don't run past this. Don't gloss over it. It's striking. First century slaves in the Roman system had no rights whatsoever. And Paul, as it relates to work ethic, is saying, you don't need them. What is right is for you to labor for the good of your master. Regardless of the circumstances that brought you into slavery, you do your best to submit to and honor your earthly master by laboring well. Not just in those matters that that are agreeable to you, but in the ones that are less than optimal as well. That's what Paul's original meaning is. What he says is what he means. So how does it apply for us? Realizing the sole recognizing responsibility um, uh, that Paul is putting before the original reading audience, if this was the standard for those who were slaves and had every right from an earthly fallen perspective to complain and revolt, how much more for us today who are in voluntary subjection? Here's what I mean. Case in point. I took the job here at IPC and and Sean Lucas is my boss, for those of you who don't know. Sean's seminary degree does not hold more weight than my seminary degree. Sean's ordination exam does not hold more weight than my ordination exam. I was not conscripted into this job I voluntarily submitted myself under his authority. If the Christian ethic and instruction was for slaves in the first century to obey their earthly masters in everything and to have their work exhibit their love for God as you would work heartily before the Lord, so too under your earthly master or for us boss as well. In other words, for me personally, it's incumbent upon me, not because I am a pastor, but because I am a Christian, to seek to put forth my best work in support of Sean, in support of the session, in support of the presbytery to which I belong, and in support of the denomination of which our church belongs. All of these, in one way or another, I submit to. The best work which I can produce is the method by which to these individuals and entities I give testimony of my faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul is calling us to? 
if it was true for the slave who had no say in the matter, how much more it's true for us who in our freedom voluntarily subject ourselves to people in authority over us. Do you see how revolutionary it is? Well, one might ask why. And Paul would answer, because as a Christian, not, as, not just as my method different, but my motivation is different. Look at the second part of verse 22 and verse 23. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Story is told of a man working on a highway roadside crew. He was the new guy on the team. He'd only been working for a couple of weeks, and he, he went to the foreman to complain. He had been there for two solid weeks, and no one yet had given him a shovel. The foreman, not the best employee in his own right, said, Hey, listen, um, I hear you, but why are you complaining? You haven't had a shovel, but, but you're still getting paid, right? And the new guy answered, Yeah, I'm getting paid. And the foreman said, so, so what's the problem? And the foreman said, or the new guy said, the problem is that everybody else has something to lean on and I don't have anything. We know people like this, don't we? If we don't want to admit there's some of this in each of us, we at least would say we know a guy or we know a girl, right? We've seen workers at places we go and shop and eat and try to secure services from. We may have coworkers like this. We've seen employees that are just running out the clock until the manager comes in, and then they jump right up and, to pretend, and pretend like they've been hard at work the whole time. We've got one game left uh, in March Madness, the, the college basketball national championship, at least on the men's side, right? I remember the first year... Um, I tried to stream a few of the early matchups online. Um, they had all the games being played. You could just go to the bottom of the screen and click on the one that you wanted to watch. And while viewing the game, I noticed a button in the upper right-hand corner that said Boss Button. Does anybody remember this? I didn't try it this year. Does anybody know if it was still there? I was, it's still there? Okay, good. I was curious Thank you for your confession. I was curious, right? And so uh, I'm streaming, the, and I thought, what's the boss button? And I clicked it. And when you click the boss button, immediately a spreadsheet comes up, and the, mute com and the volume goes away, and it's muted, right? It's as if, right, you hear your boss coming down the hallway. She doesn't know you're watching the game. You click on the boss button, boom, spreadsheet right there, right? She leaves, click it back, game come back, comes back on, all is well right? I don't know if the Colossians were kind of live streaming the Roman games from the Colosseum or not, but when, when Paul talks about eye service, he's talking about boss buttons. Don't just work when the boss is watching. Don't just be a people, in this case, a boss pleaser. No, you are working unto the Lord, Paul says you, as a Christian, have no part of this mindset and faux work ethic where you work hard when the eyes are on you but cash it in when you're by yourself. Whether the job is perceived by you to be menial or magnificent, whether you like it or not, your motivation is not to be whether your earthly master can see you. No. 
Christian, you are to work knowing that you were working before the eyes of God. You were to work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Your methods are different. Your motivation is different. Because in Christ, notice Paul says, your monetary reward, as it were, is different. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. If you were kind of in the original audience listening to this letter, if you were one of the slaves hearing these verses, the subtext of this verse lets them know that Paul realizes that they may never receive commendation from their masters. They may never receive an earthly stipend commiserate with the toil and labor, not to mention reparations for harsh treatment or labor or abuse. They may never rise to the level of freedom that they have longed for. But he reminds them you are doing it for the Lord. You serve a risen Christ. And as I had the privilege of preaching and reminding us of a few weeks ago, go back to the first verses of this chapter. Paul says, since Christian you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. It's this which Paul, in verse 23, is calling the inheritance. Some of you may have heard about a young lady by the name of Anna Delby. There's a Netflix limited series currently streaming called Inventing Anna that's received notice. Her story, once on the front page of major newspapers and, uh, and news websites, it's still there, but now it's towards the back. Or if you scroll down kind of lower or on some of the back pages, you can still find updates about Anna Delvey. It's a true story. It's a story of a young girl who scammed her way into hundreds of thousands of dollars from well-connected, very rich socialites in and around New York City. You know how she pulled off the hoax? She did it by conjuring up a story about a family trust or inheritance that wasn't real. And she used the fake story and was so believable that it served as sort of collateral for others to then invest their very real money with her. But it was made up. It wasn't real. There was no inheritance. There was no trust fund. Anna lived in light of an inheritance that wasn't real. And Paul is saying that as Christians, we do the opposite. He's correcting our thoughts because as Christians, we have an inheritance that is absolutely real, and yet we live as though it isn't. We, just as the Colossian bondservants or slaves, often live and work as if our self-worth and identity is tied up in a number reflected by the coinage handed out on payday. Imagine for a moment what Paul's words would have meant to a first century slave stuck in bondage. To the one who had sold himself into slavery to wipe out generational debt for his family. That work you did today... The Lord, your heavenly master, didn't just write down some numbers on a time card. No, your heavenly master has set aside an inheritance for you. You are rich in him. Your inheritance is kept for you. It will never be exhausted. It will never run out. It will never be taken from you. It does not spoil. It does not perish. That is both an incredible security as you lay your head down each night and a stimulus as you begin your labors the next morning. 
You have a guaranteed inheritance. Now, rest and labor in that certainty. That's what Paul is saying. Notice now Paul shifts his focus. Uh, And as we read these verses, some of you may have felt a sense of kind of unease because you notice that Paul spent three, maybe four verses talking about slaves. One, maybe two verses talking about masters. Those numbers depend on whether you believe the wrongdoers in verse 25 are talking about slaves who do not do what Paul is commending to them or if he's answering an unspoken objection about bad masters. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. The truth of the matter is, I think it's directed to both. And I think it's directed at both, and it's this connecting phrase, and I think so because of that last little bit, there is no partiality. This is a big thing in, Pauline the- uh, in, in the theology of Paul. It is a huge emphasis for him. You've heard in the past, remember, there is uh, neither Jew nor Greek, or male or female, slave or free. Therefore, there is no partiality. Then it would equally apply to both. The slave who gives half effort and the master who gives only partial reward. Both are wrongdoers, according to Paul. Hence, this verse, I think, is meant for both. So then, one might say that uh, out of the five verses tonight, four are talking about slaves, two are talking about masters. Still, don't worry. It equals out in the end. I'll show you why in just a second. But notice, when Paul is talking about masters, he reminds them that as masters... In Christ, it's about stewardship. In Christ, it's about stewardship. First part of verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants or slaves justly and fairly. Paul may not have called for societal revolution, but this is a revolutionary concept to the masters in the first century. Pay your bondservants what they're worth. Pay them a fair wage. Pay them and treat them justly and fairly. Yes, I know the law gives you the right to do whatever you want to do. Not as a Christian. There's one ethic for you. Treat them justly and fairly. And the masters of the house may have had some questions such as, well then, Paul, what what is fair? Kind of in the same way that uh, the young lawyer, right? Well, who is my neighbor? It's kind of the escape route, right? Let's take the off-ramp. Paul doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't go there. What is fair? What is just? Or what if my bondservants are the wrongdoers that you just described? What then? I can imagine Paul retorting, well, as masters, what about your hypocrisies? What about your laziness? What about our arrogance and dehumanizing and lessening of others? How was that dealt with? Were not you treated fairly and justly by God? The answer, of course, is yes, but, but with a twist, right? All of these sins, all of these shortcomings were dealt with, but by Jesus. Jesus paid those transgressions. The anger and wrath of God was outpoured on him and thus satisfied so that each and every Christian master in both that room and in this one would receive grace and mercy. Just as the slaves were pointed to the inheritance they have, so too the masters have access to their inheritance in Christ Jesus. And therefore they pay, if you will, out of the treasure trove of grace that is theirs. You may be saying to yourself, where? 
Where do you see that? I believe it's in the second half of verse 1. Knowing that you, masters, have a master in heaven. Again, think about Philemon. Philemon, the master of this particular house, knew because of the personal letter that Paul wrote to him that his very life was owed to the gospel being preached to him by Paul. And Paul, reminding him of that, instructed him to not charge the debt owed to him by Onesimus, his bondservant, to Onesimus, but instead to charge it to Paul's account. A personal reminder that Philemon's debts have been paid by another as well. Therefore, Philemon and all masters, remember, you are to steward the grace and mercy and justice that you have received and invest it right at home with your bondservants. Okay, one might say. I get the principle, but why do them specifically, the least deserving ones in my house? And Paul's answer, because you too have a master in heaven. Do you see it? Masters are bondservants as well. If masters have a master, what does it make them? It makes them bondservants. It makes them slaves. They're a doulos, just like the doulos in their own home. All these verses apply to the masters. As you have been treated by your master, so you to treat those entrusted to you. Which I think leads to Paul's last point. Masters in Christ, remember, you're not sovereign. You're not sovereign. Every master has a master. Even the most powerful, rich, and seemingly self-sufficient masters have masters. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Robert Pera, Fred Smith, they're employed by shareholders. The one often called the most powerful man in the world, the President of the United States, works for the American people. And earthly masters have a sovereign master in heaven who rules and overrules all things. What they have been given was not their own. It's a temporary entrustment. They are just stewards And they are not sovereign. When we find ourselves in leadership of other people, and we're the ones that are in power and authority, we are to treat those individuals with justice and fairness and grace as God has shown to us. This is how bosses and masters give testimony to God's grace in their lives and their own personal realization that their bondservants and employees are image bearers of their heavenly master. So those of you who are employers, those of you who are bosses, let me ask you, do your workers know you're a Christian based on this? Do the people who report to you Would one of the reasons they say, I know my boss is a Christian, is because of the way she treats me? Or would there be some doubt? As bondservants and masters, bosses and employees, teachers and students, Paul says we each have an audience of one. And he is our God in heaven. So we labor and we work and we study unto him. 
And when we do, our work becomes a form of worship. Praise be to God in our worship as well as in our hearts and on our lips. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would make these words real to us. And that, Father, we, w- we would take seriously that which Paul gave to the original audience and realize that, Father, if it is true for them, how much more is it true uh, for us? I pray that we would consider all of our earthly relationships, that we, we would think about those to whom we are in subjection to, those who have authority over us, and that, Father, we would seek to honor them by our labors, not just when they're watching, not in order just to get a raise, but because, Father, as we work, we are offering worship to you. You are our master. And so, Father, may the people that we report to see that in our lives. And then, Father, I pray for those uh, who may report to us and, Father, be subject in some ways to us. I pray that they, too, may know that we are Christians by the way in which we love them, by the way in which we treat them fairly and justly, by the way in which we seek their common good and their benefit. Father, I pray that there would be no doubt among those whom we work with that we are Christians. Yes, Father, I pray that that you would do this for our common good and for the good of our workplaces and the people with whom we work. But ultimately, I pray uh, that you um, you would see to it that this is done because it furthers our worship before you and all that we do. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or work or labor or study, may we do it unto you. For you alone are worthy of such praise. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.